again, everyone, and welcome to the 77th episode of the Cotton Companion Podcast. We've got a somewhat different episode for you today. Uh, we hope it's a format you like and, and would like to hear more of. Uh, this is Jim Stedman, Senior Editor of Cotton Grower, and as always, I'm joined by Cotton Grower Editor Frank Giles. Frank, what are you hearing or what are you feeling out in the southeast right now? It's been hot and dry, at least in uh, Georgia. I'm down here in Florida, and we've been getting those typical afternoon thunder showers every day. But I uh, was speaking with Wes Briggs, our uh, cotton consultant in South Georgia that participates in our crop scan reports, and uh, just was speaking to him yesterday, and cotton is really suffering under the hot, dry weather there. Um, luckily, a good bit of that cotton is under irrigation in, that, in his part of the world, so it's faring better um, and setting up a pretty decent crop, but the dry land has really suffered. Uh, between the time that I spoke to him yesterday morning and this morning, they did get some rain in South Georgia. He said there were areas that got an inch up to two inches, so that's going to be real helpful, uh, especially even for the irrigated cotton because they've been running those pivots nonstop really having a hard time keeping up even with the pivots uh, so uh, they're getting a little bit of beneficial rain here in mid to late August uh, would be a big help. That'd definitely be a big help. Well we've got some interesting topics we're going to cover today and and to help with our discussion uh, Dr. Gary Adams who's president and CEO of the National Cotton Council is going to join us here in our virtual studio in just a few minutes but before we get started let's hear a short message from our sponsor Phytogen. Phytogen is pleased to sponsor the Cotton Companion, bringing you the latest news to help you thrive all season long. Okay, as always, a big thanks to the folks at Phytogen for sponsoring the Cotton Companion podcast. Before we jump into the meat of today's episode, let's take a few minutes and turn things over to our colleague Robin Sickberg for a custom content interview with Phytogen Cotton Development Specialist, Ben Benton. Hello, I'm Robin Sitberg, Custom Content Editor for Meister Media Worldwide, publisher of Cotton Grower Magazine. My guest on the program today is Ben Benton, Phytogen Cotton Development Specialist in Kansas and the Texas and Oklahoma Panhandles. Uh, thank you so much for being on the program, Ben. Thank you, Robin. Really glad to be here. Well, I've heard some good reports um, coming from Kansas this season, and that's your area. So tell us a little, little bit about the cotton acreage in Kansas. Kansas is a little newer on the cotton scene, if you will. Uh, and it was, uh, it's been around for 20 plus years up there, but only in 2016, they had less than 50,000 acres. And in a few short years, it's really grown to uh, around 200,000 acres. If it hadn't surpassed that yet, it will very, very soon. It's been a good year so far. It started a little dry and, and had a little tough conditions out in Southwest Kansas. South Central Kansas has really had a, a pretty good year overall. So what varieties are you seeing uh, from phytogen that are performing well in Kansas this year? Well, when we look at Kansas, we kind of divide it into two fairly distinct regions. Southwest Kansas is dominated by irrigated cotton planted after corn and rotated with corn. So there's generally plenty of fertility and, and irrigation for cotton. Uh, not so much for corn, and that's why cotton's making such a nice rotational partner out there. We've got to manage that crop for earliness. It's higher elevation, and we don't have this, uh, as long a growing season out there. So we've got to plant as early as we can, 
have excellent seedling vigor. We don't have time to replant a crop out there, and the phytogen varieties do an excellent job of that. And then we've got to get it finished up in September so we can still get some excellent quality out of it. Two varieties that work very well for this is our early varieties, Phytogen 210 and Phytogen 250W3FE. Uh, those are both protected by, from verticillium wilt and bacterial blight, of course, and have the enlist trait, which out there is defensive as much as it is offensive. There's a whole lot of uh, 2,4-D that goes out on uh, wheat pasture or wheat fields and things like that. And so uh, that pulls it along there. In South Central Kansas, they get more rain and it's lower elevation and there's just more heat units. It's a lot like Central Oklahoma. So we can use early mid varieties a lot better out there. The first one I'd mentioned would be Phytogen 350, very broadly adapted. We use that all over the South Plains area. We use that a little further in central Kansas. And then as we move down to the Oklahoma uh, border, the couple of tiers of counties there bordering Oklahoma, uh, Phytogen 400 is really showing to be the yield champ in, early, in plots last year. And it's planted on a lot of acres this year, and it's really starting to, to dominate some acres out there. Works all the way across the cotton belt, and this is another area that it's really shining for us. Well, thanks for sharing those varieties. I hope uh, growers take note of, you know, which ones are doing well in their particular region. And, you know, going into harvest soon, but it's never too early to start planning for next year. And, and knowing what varieties did well this year is a big part of that. So um, thanks again, Ben, and growers can get more information at phytogen.com. Thanks again, Robin. All right. Well, thanks, Robin, and thank you, Ben, for that interview segment. Frank, before we bring Gary Adams in, uh, we've had two hurricanes impact the cotton belt since our last podcast, and we'd certainly be remiss if we didn't share our sadness over the damage that Hurricane Hannah brought to parts of coastal and south Texas. Uh, initial reports that we've seen from Texas A&M AgriLife showed the area estimated cotton crop losses of 90 to 100 percent over nearly 140 acres in and around Cameron, Hidalgo, and Willacy counties, with some areas also receiving some pretty extensive flooding. And then a week later, here comes Hurricane Isiasis working its way up the East Coast. And at one time, it looked like it was bearing down on you, but you obviously shooed it away. Yeah, we, we had our eye on that one in Florida, and it just, you know, stayed east off the coast and was really a non-event uh, for central Florida. But the Carolinas, you know, obviously they had some damage and some, uh, some bad weather there. But for our cotton folks, sounds like it brought some good uh, moisture their way. Uh, Chad Harrell, also one of our consultants for the Crop, crop Scan Report, uh, told us that they've got most of his area growers got up to four inches of rain, um, some places more. So the cotton is really bounced back. They had been suffering some really hot, dry weather as well up there prior to the storm. So uh, we talked yesterday morning as well, and, and uh, he's saying the cotton's really perked up and is looking a lot better um, after getting that good moisture on the crop. From what I understand, and, and I'm certainly no meteorologist, uh, to be sitting here in mid-August with name storms that have already worked their way to J is not a comfortable feeling, especially since experts are now predicting a few more named storms this season than they originally thought. So here's hoping we can get through the rest of this growing season and harvest without any major disruptions from additional hurricanes. But considering it's still 2020 and it's pretty much been an unpredictable year so far, 
we'll just keep our fingers crossed and hope for the best because we sure need it. Yeah, that's the truth. And, you know, we're moving through those names, uh, name storm at a, at a record pace. So we just, we just had the eye. We'll have to remember Hurricane Irma hit on September the 10th. Um, so we're already blasting through the eye and the alphabet uh, here in August. Um, so we'll keep our fingers crossed as we move through this hurricane season. And now, as we mentioned earlier, we'd like to welcome Dr. Gary Adams, who's president and CEO of the National Cotton Council, to the Virtual Cotton Companion Studio. Gary, thanks for taking time out of your busy schedule to join us today. Uh, how have you and, and everyone at the council been doing since, uh, since we moved home in March? And I, I, I understand you're, you're back in your office, at least for right now, but uh, how are things going? Well, they're, they're, well, thank you, Jim. It's a pleasure to be with you today. And uh, they're busy. Uh, that's, that's certainly for sure. There's no shortage of issues to talk about. Uh, you're right. It's, uh, although we're having to change how we get our business done, uh, we went through uh, kind of the, the stay-at-home uh, time that uh, was implemented by the Memphis local government. Now we're in a phased reopening, but even with that, we're still encouraging a lot of our employees to, uh, uh, to telework to the greatest extent possible and, and just continue regular communications via Zoom and conference calls. Well, you know, obviously, despite the, uh, the pandemic's best efforts, the, the business of cotton continues and it's, 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 we've got to keep it moving. Uh, today, I wanted to spend some time talking with you about the U.S. Cotton Trust Protocol that was announced and launched last year. Uh, can you tell us about the program, why it was put in place, and why it is so important to our industry at this point? Absolutely. And, and the U.S. Cotton Trust Protocol is a, a, a new program we're launching that the cotton industry is launching. So it's a collaborative effort between uh, National Cotton Council working with uh, Cotton Incorporated, with uh, uh, staff at the Cotton Board, and uh, Cotton Council International. So all of us are involved in, in bringing this program to life. And really, it is a, it's a voluntary farm-level program designed to drive uh, continuous improvement. I think it gives us an opportunity to, to tell the sustainability story of U.S. cotton farmers. And I think the, the importance of, of why the program is needed is the fact that as we look at uh, what's being asked of the brands and retailers, uh, particularly from consumers and then from NGOs, uh, we know they have to be uh, much more careful in their sourcing. Uh, we know they're being asked about how the, the products they source, how they're produced. And so in order to be able to keep those marketing channels open to U.S. cotton, uh, we need to be able to demonstrate our sustainability credentials uh, to, the, uh, to the brands and retailers. We need to collect that necessary data and be able to focus on continuous improvement. Uh, so I, I think those are the, the main aspects driving the uh, launch of the program. Gary, you know, with the protocol just completing its pilot project phase and moving into full in implementation, how many growers have, have signed on and how many do you hope to have signed on as we move out of this year going into next year? When we went through the pilot phase in 2019, we had approximately 300 producers that uh, participated in the pilot phase. Uh, now we're, we're transitioning away from that pilot phase and, and looking to expand enrollment as we go further into 2020. Our objective right now would probably be somewhere in the range of about five to 600 producers within this first year. And, that, and that's really an activity we're gonna be uh, really ramping up as we go through the second half of uh, 2020. Uh, among, the, among those 300 growers who, who signed up for the pilot program, any indications from them about how much time it took, any feedback from them on, on things that, uh, that you were asking them to do that, that worked and things that maybe needed to be tweaked a little bit? Oh, sure. 
Uh, well, and, and in terms of what the, the producer has to do to enroll in the program, there's really probably two key components. One is a self-assessment questionnaire that is about 100, uh, maybe a little more, 100 questions uh, that ask about their various management practices in nine different categories, their management and their farming practices. We typically find that that takes uh, somewhere in the range of about, oh, probably 30 to 45 minutes uh, to go through and complete uh, the self-assessment questionnaire. And uh, the company called The Seam, a Memphis-based IT company and, and also developed an online trading platform, they're, uh, they're the company that has developed uh, the, the online platform that our growers will use. I think they've done a great job in terms of making it user-friendly, but that's the time commitment there. The second uh, aspect of their enrollment is to use what we refer to as a qualified data tool. And this relies on uh, tools that have been developed by a sustainability alliance referred to as Build the Market. And we have been active, we, the National Cotton Council, have been active in Build the Market for more than a decade. And it, it allows a producer to input specific information about their field, the inputs they use, uh, whether, you know, the tillage practices they use, and it's going to generate for them uh, some environmental metrics. And they can compare how their field looks relative to the aggregate results for their state or for the country. Uh, I think in terms of, of putting a field in, if they have the data handy, that probably takes about 30 minutes to move through and, and put the field in. So we hope that it is a relatively small time commitment, but it's but it's not without some burden. And we do need you know producers to be committed and certainly encourage their enrollment because we think one, we hope it can provide them some useful feedback uh, so that they can see areas for continuous improvement. And they have a great track record of adopting technology and, and improving uh, their resource efficiency, shrinking their environmental footprint. We believe this is gonna give some, them some tools to continue to do that going forward. And again, it's going to give us better data that we can demonstrate to the uh, textile supply chain what our producers are doing so that when they look at sourcing responsibly produced or sustainable cotton, that they have U.S. cotton on their list. Now, going back through my notes here over the last couple of months, um, been a couple of benchmarks for the program that have been put in place. And I think going back to April, uh, the trust protocol was added to the textile exchanges material uh, change index program. Uh, that's a list of, as I understand it, 36 preferred fibers and materials that more than 170 brands and retailers can select from. Uh, and then in June, you mentioned uh, uh, field to market that uh, the protocol formalized a, a more of a partnership uh, with that organization. And then most recently, uh, the, the, the program has expanded to allow brands and retailers to become part of the protocol uh, in order to, for them to access some of this data uh, to help them excuse me, better measure progress toward meeting their own commitments. Uh, those are some pretty significant steps for a growing program that, uh, you know, that's just a little over a year old. Well, it is, and we, we certainly have a lot of, a lot of resources devoted, devoted to the development of the program. We were very pleased uh, to see the textile exchange add uh, the U.S. Cotton Trust Protocol to their, their list of preferred fibers. A lot of the brands and retailers will look at the textile exchange list and, and when making uh, some of their sourcing decisions or deciding what they consider to be uh, responsibly produced cotton. Uh, and, that, and that certainly took a lot of background work to get us to that point, providing them information about the program. So that's been, uh, I think, a big step forward. And then 
Field to Market, as I mentioned, we've had a long collaboration with them. Uh, the work they do is integral to what we're trying to accomplish with the protocol. So now we're under this uh, memorandum, we are going to look for ways to continue to collaborate going forward. And, and now as we uh, kind of move through the summer, uh, really opening up the program to the brands and retailers, because ultimately, yes, it, this is a program uh, that will enroll producers, but ultimately it's going to be uh, targeted toward the brands and retailers. They're going to be key because they're going to—they're the ones providing that demand base. So we might—we have to make sure that it meets their needs. And so now, as we go forward, look for ways to uh, to continue to engage with the brands and retailers, enroll them in the program, get their support, but also uh, engage with those brands and retailers so that as we structure some of the the final details of the program, that we make sure that it meets their needs and that it gives them the data they need and the format that they need. Sure. Now, I think the, uh, the protocol from what uh, also conducted a recent global survey, basically showing that apparel and textile leaders that were, that were part of this survey uh, are believing that consumer demand for sustainability efforts uh, has actually grown during uh, the COVID-19 times, uh, but could also possibly impact customer loyalty. Are there, were there any specifics in the data from that survey that struck you as being of, of particular interest? Well, I, I think one I would go back to, and, and that survey was conducted, I think the first version was conducted in March and then the second in, in uh, maybe mid to late June. So we had about a three month window there between uh, the two surveys being done. And we know over the course of the pandemic, there's been just uh, tremendous financial pressure, economic pressure on uh, a number of brands and retailers, and we you can kind of go back through the, the news cycles and see the bankruptcies that have been declared. So uh, this has certainly been devastating to retail demand and devastating to uh, brands and retailers. Now, having said that, I think one thing that was interesting coming out of that survey is that a number of the brands and retailers that responded back in March and now responded in June actually indicated that they see sustainability being even more important coming out of the COVID pandemic than it was going in. And I, I think part of that just really reinforces, uh, you know, the, their focus on the fact that they've got to be as efficient as they can with their resources. And I think the pandemic also uh, has shown them that they need to make sure they understand what their supply chain looks like. Transparency in the supply chain is also uh, critically important because as we've seen those supply chains can be disrupted by the pandemic when you have the closure. So understanding how to try to continue to keep those supply chain going, supply chain going is even more critical. Sure. What, uh, what's, what's next for the protocol as, as we move to the, into the second half of this year? I think uh, a, a couple of things and we touched on a, a little bit. One is, you know, continuing to engage with, with producers to enroll them in the program. Uh, that's going to be a key part is to try to hit, hopefully hit that target of five to 600 producers enrolled as we go out through the fall. Uh, the next thing will be to continue our efforts in raising the awareness within the textile supply chain. So continue to talk to the brands and retailers. And we understand we're coming into this in a, in a challenging and uncertain economic environment. I don't, there's no, uh, you know, there's uh, certainly no mystery about that, but I do think there's still that strong focus on sustainability. Uh, so we've got to continue to engage and educate them about what the program is and what it can provide uh, to them. So that, that's our uh, big focus as we go out over the course of this year. That's great. I want to shift gears just a little bit for a, maybe a quick look at some of the other topics that the, the council's been involved in. 
over the over the last few months, and, and in some cases even the last few years. The first one that comes to mind is the CFAP program that was announced back in April. What's the status of the next COVID-19 package, and and what's the council hoping to 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 see added to that package to help help the cotton industry? Well, uh, certainly the the CFAP program that's uh, sign up is is currently underway and has been for a couple of months has been very beneficial to some of our cotton producers in terms of trying to uh, address um, uh, some of the economic impacts that occurred on the 2019 crop. Now, as we look to the rest of this year, though, and as we look at the economic challenges that we have within the U.S. cotton industry, we're hoping to see some legislation put in place by Congress that would really address what we see as three critical areas within the industry. Uh, one is assistance for our U.S. textile manufacturers. I mean, they have they have been, uh, you might say, the tip of the spear, and it particularly starts with that uh, sharp decline in retail demand and those closures that we had at retail, uh, at the retail outlets that really has backed things up in the supply chain. A number of our uh, textile entities were essentially shut down through uh, through uh, April and into May. And in fact, uh, in the month of April, we were down, the amount of cotton they were consuming was down 90% from what it should have been. And even now, as they're starting to come back online, it's only up to maybe 40 to 50% of what a normal uh, rate should be. Uh, so that's one is to get them some critical assistance. The other uh, area where we need to see some assistance is some, some help within the merchandising segment of the industry. And again, when we look at the slowdown in global demand and we consider the fact that USDA has cut about 20 million bales off their expectations of world demand from where we were in January, February to where we are now. And that's led to an increase in stocks. Uh, you, you run into additional carrying costs, just the overall disruption that we're seeing in global demand. So that's the, that's the second area. And then finally, as we look at just the overall economic situation for producers, particularly going into the 2020 crop, uh, hopefully we'll see some uh, additional funding there that would allow USDA to provide some support to producers uh, for the 2020 crop. So let's, you know, put 2019 behind us and now try to focus on, on uh, the coming year and the coming harvest. And, and that's really what the cotton industry hopes to see. Uh, we had some of that uh, was, uh, was built in into the HEROES Act. Uh, then, of course, we've got a, a proposal that was put forward in the Senate. Uh, that was a little bit more general in nature, uh, probably does not get us where we need to be on, on the merchandising side and includes some processor language that could hopefully be beneficial to our textile manufacturers. But I say all of that uh, is, is set up against a backdrop of just negotiations that do not appear to be moving uh, forward at this current time. And that's, you know, that's what we're continuing to follow is this, the, the stalemate that we've had negotiations. We hope they can come back to the negotiating table and make something happen as we move through August. But uh, it looks like there's a lot of challenges there that are that are on issues bigger than uh, the ag support. Well, Gary, you know, we we nearly had a, a pigweed or weed control disaster when the Ninth Circuit Court of Appeals vacated three of three key dicamba herbicides. Um, I know the council came out strongly in favor of the EPA's ruling that allowed growers to use existing stocks that they had on hand. And I think by and large, we're able to avert a disaster because of that. I know you guys will be active as the re-registration process gets underway for those herbicides going forward. Just to talk a little bit about what the council has planned for that and what, if anything, uh, growers should do 
as these products get re-registered. Uh, well, you're right. It, it was a, it's been a busy summer summer in terms of dicamba and uh, and the actions that was taken by that panel in the Ninth uh, Circuit Court. Uh, and and you're right. We did support EPA's decision to allow those existing stocks that were already uh, in the hands of growers to be used uh, through the end of July. And that that really was a a, a real benefit for producers for uh, this growing season. Now, and we do understand, and and we've been. In, communication with EPA, they are uh, moving forward with their internal process to put together a label for 2021. And we'll, we'll certainly be plugging into that process in any way we can. Uh, we'll be conveying information to EPA on the importance of dicamba uh, to U.S. cotton producers and what the economic impact would be if that, if that product's not available for use for uh, 2021. Uh, and, so, and so that'll be dialogue that'll continue over, I would say, probably the next uh, several weeks. Uh, and again, we'll hope uh, EPA will move forward in a timely manner. We know they've got uh, to take into consideration uh, some of the uh, issues that were that came out of that Ninth Circuit Court, uh, and I suspect they will as they look at uh, putting the, a label together for 2021. Uh, and, and we understand they're going to need to address that. We just hope it, it, it creates still a workable label for producers. I would just encourage producers uh, as they, once they see the new label and as they look to, to their decisions in the next year, obviously be mindful of the restrictions that are in place. Always, you know, uh, heed those restrictions because I, I, we have to be good stewards of those products in order to be able to keep them going forward. That's just absolutely critical because we know if we're not good stewards of those products, then we'll not have them uh, going forward. And, and I'd say that's probably the biggest issue to, be, uh, to point out to producers. Okay. And, and one last question for you, Gary, before, before, we, uh, before we end this session. Uh, got word uh, within the past week that four senators have introduced a bill uh, to ban organophosphates, neonics, and paraquat. Uh, to restrict emergency exemptions outside a product's label and uh, and basically allow citizens to petition EPA to designate uh, some pesticides as dangerous. Uh, I know you folks are on top of this. What, if anything, should the industry expect out of this at this point? Well, I don't I don't know if we see any anything immediately happening out of this legislation, but it is clearly uh, a a signal of probably what is the environment that we're in and what we can expect to come. Uh, and again, you know, we've seen we've seen this in in court actions in the past in terms of going after various products. Now we're seeing it in legislation. Uh, we've got to be, I think, diligent in making sure that uh, the appropriate facts are out there and that you know, it's, it, and that people understand the label. I think it it gets to sometimes. You know, we talk about producers following the label, and I think a lot of consumers, well, they feel like, okay, uh, a label just means you're kind of, you know, what you see when you turn a can around and the label is a short little description. They don't really realize that a label for the use of these types of chemicals is developed after a number of scientific tests, and it is, it, it should be called a book as opposed to a label because it is extensive in terms of how producers has to apply those chemicals and the fact that they have to have special training to, uh, to apply the chemicals and they have to use special equipment to apply it. And there's just a tremendous number of safeguards in place. And I think we've got to do a better job of making sure that consumers understand the requirements and the restrictions that our farmers have to uh, have to farm. And I think they need to understand too that 
our farmers are going to use these in the least amount possible as necessary. I mean, that's that's to their economic benefit, it's to the environmental benefit. And, the, and that's the way those products are going to be applied. And those products uh, like the organophosphates and the nicotinoids, they are going to be absolutely critical to make sure that we can be as productive as we can and provide the, the food, feed, and fiber uh, for a growing population. So again, I think it, it's going to continue to be a battle. Uh, and in some ways, it, it rolls right up into the sustainability that we were talking about earlier, that efficient use of resources. Because when we, when we talk to, uh, again, I go back to talking to some of the brands and the retailers, uh, there's very much a, a focus on chemicals there. And, and we have been working to convey to them what the regulatory environment is in, in the United States, what's allowed, what's not allowed. And when it is allowed, the fact that it comes along with so many restrictions and constraints. And I think that's just, that's part of the job we have to continue to convey that message. Sounds great. Uh, with that, uh, we're going to wrap this discussion up, Gary. Uh, again, thank you for taking time out of your busy schedule to join us today. Uh, it's been great having you back on the Cotton Companion. Uh, let's plan to do it again soon, hopefully when someday when we can get face-to-face. -face. Absolutely. Uh, you know, and, and, and everybody's moving around and, and feeling a little bit more comfortable. But again, anyway, anyway thank you again for, for joining us. All right. Thank you very much. Appreciate it. And that pretty much wraps up this episode of Cotton Companion. Thanks again to Dr. Gary Adams for joining us in our virtual studio today. Thanks to the folks at Phytogen for sponsoring us. And thank you, dear listeners, for joining us. If you like what you hear on the Cotton Companion, please be sure to spread the word and tell your farmer's friends about this podcast. Here's how you do it. You can find the Cotton Companion in three easy ways. First, go to cottongrower.com forward slash companion, or simply click the podcast tab at the top of the homepage. Second, subscribe to our channel on iTunes or wherever you find your podcasts these days. And three, sign up for our weekly e-newsletter, The Cotton Grower E-News, that's delivered to your email inbox every Tuesday morning. You can do that by going to cottongrower.com forward slash subscribe. Also, be sure to follow Cotton Grower on social media. We are at Cotton Grower Mag on Twitter. And on Facebook, you'll find us by searching for Cotton Grower Magazine. Yes, we are getting fancy. Just a reminder, our August-September issue is in production as we speak, and that should be hitting your mailboxes here in a few weeks, so please watch for it. This podcast is produced by Tyler Hatch and Kim Henderson our talented colleagues back at the mothership Meister Media Worldwide in lovely Willoughby, Ohio. My name's Jim Stedman, and I'll be back with you in a few weeks for the next episode of The Cotton Companion. So for now, on behalf of my own cotton companion, Frank Giles, we wish you all the best and stay safe. Yeah, he works and he works and he works and he works all day. God made a farm. Phytogen thanks you for listening to this edition of the Cotton Companion. To learn how you can thrive with Phytogen, go to phytogen.com.